Um, hey, my name's Will. It's great to be here with you all this morning. Uh, it was great also to, to worship with you guys, uh, those of you who were here a couple nights ago, uh, for the Christmas Eve service. Uh, just awesome being able to sing. I was in the back with my son, Caleb. He's almost four. And uh, it was cool just to be able to sing of, of Christ coming um, at the end of the service. And I was holding him, and I just shared, hey, buddy, I really love you. And he's like, Dad, I love you too. And uh, then, then I was like, Caleb, isn't, isn't, uh, you know, isn't it great? Jesus is just the best gift that we could have. And he was like, no, I got a lightsaber. Um, and so we have some work to do uh, before next year. Um, but I hope for you that, uh, in all seriousness, that uh, Christmas Eve and, and uh, Christmas Day was a time to really reflect on the reality that um, Jesus is a gift to us, and that's not just a hallmark card saying, but, but a reality that we really believe. Um, so um, we're going to be in 1 John this morning, chapter 3. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles over there. And if you don't have a Bible uh, and you'd like to read along, go ahead and raise your hand. We've got a couple people handing some out, and uh, they'd be happy to give one to you there. Um, but we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3 this morning as we conclude our Advent series together. Um, so as you turn there, I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer, and then I'll read this and we'll jump into it. Lord, it's good um, to gather um, as your people, and um, the reality that, that those of us are here this morning, even though many of us were here two nights ago, is a demonstration that this isn't just a ritual for us where we're supposed to show up to church every week, but we actually really want to be here because we love you, and we want to hear from your word, and we want to be uh, challenged by you and provoked by you, and so we just celebrate that we can gather together this morning in light of that truth. Um, and Lord, my prayer this morning is uh, really pretty simple, yet it's something that I simply cannot do on my own. And as the Apostle Paul prayed in the book of Ephesians over the Ephesian church that he loved, um, the, the one thing that he wanted them to be able to have in his prayer was a small glimpse or grasp of your unspeakably wonderful love. And many of us in this room have been Christians for a long time, and we've heard of your love a thousand times, ten thousand times, and it's just white noise to us. But along with the Apostle Paul, I pray over this family this morning that you would allow us uh, to comprehend just a measure of the, the breadth and the height and the length and the width of your love that surpasses knowledge. I pray that you would awaken us to that reality this morning as we look in your word. And I pray that out of that love and out of that acceptance that you've given us, apart from any works of our own, that we would be challenged to, to go forward and live a life that's worthy of that love, to live a life that's worthy of the calling that we've received. And so we just lay this before you this morning. Father, would you speak to us as we gather as your people? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in about a week, uh, speaking of my son, Caleb, we're hitting uh, his four-year birthday. And as I reflect on moments uh, throughout uh, your life that are the most altering, um, where, where the most restructuring happens, probably at the birth of your first child is the moment where the most planning and transformation takes place. Like the amount of prep that we put into for the arrival of our first child uh, is pretty serious. From the nursery, getting the theme right, and uh, we went with like a sailor theme and had a mural painted on the wall. 
because um, like I, I had this thought in my head, like we want to set him off on a good trajectory, so we have to have a good theme in the room uh, that would influence that, let alone that a newborn can't even see in, like two feet in front of them for the first several months of their lives. But the nursery was very important to us. We got the crib with the bumpers so they wouldn't hit their head while they're sleeping, and the mobile that spins over, over them as they rest, and the onesies and the little binkies. And so that's one category of preparation. The other one that is really big, some of you who are parents remember this, is the safety prep that goes into the arrival of your firstborn child. Um, From plugging up every outlet in your house so they can't stick something in there and electrocute themselves, to uh, closing up your cabinets so that they can't get in there and drink some bleach while you're not looking. Um, to we even as we installed our, our car seat for our first child, we made a special trip to the firehouse so that like a 23 year old fire, volunteer firefighter could inspect it, make sure it was in there properly and safe, and all that kind of stuff. Tons of safety preparation. Some of you may have this. There is legitimately a baby formula Keurig that they've come up with so that in the middle of the night when you wake up with your newborn, you can just walk over, press a button, and you've got four or six ounces of baby formula ready to go for you. So you prepare with that. Um, The thing that shocked me the most and where I had to put my foot down was for the changing table, you can get an electric baby wipe warmer so that... When you're in a changing experience, the, the child wouldn't be traumatized through a cold wipe, uh, you know, uh, through that experience. And so you can get a heater for that. I put my foot down on it. My wife was like, um, you know, why don't you uh, take two cold, cold uh, showers for two years and see how, how it feels for you? Um, and uh, so, so, so here's the thing. Like the amount of preparation that goes into the arrival of our first child uh, can be a little bit crazy. Um, But we do all of that with the simple recognition that the advent of this little human is near, and I better start structuring my life around the reality that they're coming. Um, We know that, that, that when this new child is coming, that our world has to change. It has to change how we live. It changes our house. Um, and, and, and so we prepare in light of that reality. And so let me bend this to where we're headed uh, this morning. Um, the arrival of Jesus Christ in this world has to affect how we live our lives. It has to to have a restructuring effect, a a transforming effect in the way that we live our day-to-day lives today. Both the past reality of his coming and the future hope of his return has to change how we live. And so before us, we've got um, 1 John. um, And uh, uh, I didn't even read it yet. Let me read it for us. I got so excited talking about the preparation for the, for the child. It says, uh, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies themselves even as he is pure. And so this is 1 John to us this morning. It was written in the first century to churches that were scattered through the area that we would now refer to as Turkey. And John's point uh, through much of this letter is that John is floored by the reality that because Christ has come and has appeared to us, we can have real fellowship with God. That blows John the Apostle away, that we can have a legitimate personal relationship with God, but much of his point through the letter is that someone who does have this personal relationship with God will as a, have, have certain evidences in their life that would demonstrate that to be true. 
So for John, it's, it's not enough that we would claim to have, a, have a, a new relationship with God because of what Christ has done, but also that we would have a very new relationship with sin as well. Because the arrival of Jesus into this world must affect the way that we go about living our life. His, his uh, arrival automatically means dismissal of our, of our old pattern of living. And he's going to put this thing so strongly at certain points throughout the letter where he's going to say that if your life has gone unchanged by the arrival of Christ, you're probably not a Christian. This is so serious for John, how his arrival transforms us. But it's how the arrival of Christ into this world transforms the way we live our life that's the most important thing. Because John's going to call us to a certain standard of life, one that's pure and free from sin and disobedience. But it's how he calls us into this standard that will provide the fuel for us to, to be able to actually live that way. It's how he calls us to it that's the most important thing. Um, and this is important for us because none of us are particularly good at making significant changes in our own life. Like, as we face the new year just a few days away, like, dare I ask how many of us were able to maintain New Year's resolutions all the way to this day? And New Year's resolutions are normally basic things like Bible reading plans or getting into the gym or losing 10 pounds or, or, or whatever, just basic things like that, but, but serious uh, transformation in, in our character, who we really are, that doesn't come easy to any of us because we don't have the heart that motivates us to make those changes. And so as we stare 2016 in the face, like, I wonder if you've reflected on and considered, like, will this be the year that I finally begin to see transformation in my life? Will this be the year that I'm finally able to get over my ongoing pornography addiction? Will this be the year that I finally begin to uh, lead my wife and my kids well in my home? Will this be the year that I finally get over crippling anxiety and worry about life? Will this be the year that, that I overcome anger and finally begin to love those who are in my life well? These are questions that, 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 that plague us. And, and many of us, uh, because this is so challenging for us, have outright given up. And so my prayer for us this morning is that the realities that John will present us with would provide the legitimate motivation and fuel that we need to make those kinds of changes in our lives. And I also recognize that there are many of you here this morning, and uh, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. In fact, you're skeptical of the claims of Christianity. And, and this right here is one of the kickers for you, um, because you, you maybe embrace the idea that you don't need a God or an ancient book telling you how to live your life. And, and maybe you have, have grasped the mantra that our culture um, believes quite strongly, that the ability for you to live a good flourishing, well-put-together life is found deep within yourself, and, and you can do that on your own. And, and maybe that's your belief, but what strikes me about where our culture is at this moment is that while we promise that, we are using more antidepressants than we ever have before. We are um, more, more lonely. We are more self-centered. Uh, there's more relational brokenness happening in our own lives today than ever before. And so um, I, I might just suggest to you, if you are skeptical of the claims of Christianity, that there might even be some things significant for you uh, this morning as well. Um, and so I'd invite you as well to consider what John has for us as we look at his word um, together. Because for all of us, the way that we grow, 
the way that we change, the way that our lives are transformed, it's not through trying harder, and it's not through trying to earn something with God, and it's not through fear of consequence that he might reject us, but the way that our lives are transformed is by beholding what has been given to us in the gospel. By beholding the, uh, the, the, the love that God has lavished on us to call us his children, and the future hope that awaits us upon his return. And so as we do that, John the Apostle is going to take us on a little tour this morning. And what he's going to do is he's going to say, hey, I want to call you to a certain standard of living. Um, but, but before we get there, I want to take you on a little tour. I want to show you a couple of things. The first thing I want to show you is the love of God that's adopted you as his child. And after we've looked at that, I want to show you the future hope that awaits all those who anticipate his return. And after we've looked at those things, I'm going to call you to live a pure life. So that's where John is going to take us this morning as we look at his word. And so let's look at his uh, first stop on the tour here. He wants us to look at the love of the Father. If you look down in verse 1 of 1 John 3, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So John starts off by calling for our attention on something. He says, look, behold, get your eyes on this. We usually uh, call people's attention to something that's truly captivated us or captured us. Like if we're driving down the road and we see an accident, we'll say, oh my goodness, look what happened over there. Get your attention over there. Look what happened. Or if it ever snows this year, who knows with 70 degree weather we've had, but if it ever snows, we'll call our family, look out the window, it's snowing, like it's captured you and you want other people to look at that. And so John is saying that, that the love of God is so amazing to him that, that it's captured him, um, that, 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 that he wants us to see this incredible love. And then he says, what sort of or what kind of love? This is to communicate the, the uniqueness or even otherworldly nature of this love. It's not your run-of-the-mill love that we experience or talk about every day. He says, what sort of love is this? When Jesus was with his disciples and he was out on a boat one day with them, and a big storm set in, and uh, Jesus was in the back of the boat, he was sleeping, he was probably up all night praying before, so he took that moment to get some rest, and the storm set in. The disciples run to him, and, and, and they're, they're shocked, they're afraid, they think they're going to die. They, they wake him up and say, Jesus, don't you care about us? There's a storm. And so Jesus gets up, he calmly walks to the front of the boat, and with a word, he commands that the winds and the waves would dissipate, and it happens, they're gone. And in response to that miracle, the disciples say, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the waves obey him? Like, what, what planet is he from that he speaks and, and the winds and the waves dissipate? That's the language that John is using here when he, says, when he describes this love. What sort of love is this? that would make us children of God. And the word for love is the word agape. Maybe you've heard that before if you've run in Christian circles for a while. And um, it it can mean uh, uh, to cherish or to delight in or to be truly fond of. It's like the the strongest word that can be used to describe love. That's the the word um, that's used here. And so he says, look, what kind of love is this that we should be called children of God? that we should be is meant to highlight the the surprising nature. It's like, wouldn't it be crazy? Wouldn't it be absurd if God would call us to be his children? And the surprising part of it is the people in view 
who he invites to be his children. They're, they're people like you and me, not people who have met all of the standards, not people who naturally live a pure life in their own, but people who are distant from him, estranged from him, that he would call people like that, people like you and me, to be his children. What is it to be a child of someone? Consider that. A child receives the warm affection and is truly delighted in by their parents. A child is under the loving care and provision of their father. He looks out for their well-being. A parent-child relationship gets the privilege of walking through life together as that child grows. There's, There's an intimacy and a care between a father and a child that's not found in any other human relationship. It's just not. So what kind of love would it take God to take those who are strangers, those who are far from him, those who are at relational odds with him, and make them a child. It, it's a, it takes a really strong love to take someone who's a stranger and make them a child. Like, can I, can I confess something with you? It's a small crowd. I feel comfortable doing this this morning. Maybe there will be grace. Um, I don't always love holding other people's babies. Not, I don't always. I know there's women in here, like you get energy and vitality through holding babies, and maybe at this moment you're looking for a, a stressed out mom where you can relieve, relieve them of holding their child. Like, and it's nothing personal against the baby. I love the baby themselves. It's just when they're not my child, some of the things that uh, protrude from a, a baby, just, it, it, it just grosses me out a little bit. I'm sorry, that's where I'm at. Uh, but I'll just lay that for, before us this morning. I was at a party the other night, and Chelsea was holding someone else's baby, and uh, she had to do something, so she handed it to me. So, okay, I'll, I'll hold the baby. And, like, almost immediately, like, a faucet of drool just set in. And, uh, and like, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I'm freaked out. Um, be, because it's not my child, I don't have that kind of fatherly care that, obviously, their parents do. Um, so, so, so what John is telling us is he's saying that he doesn't relate to us like I sometimes do with other people's babies. Um, he, he, he takes people who are strangers, people who are actually quite a mess, and he invites them in, and he relates to them like a father. He relates to them like a father. They're not his by natural descent, and, uh, but what unites them is stronger than what natural descent could be. What, what unites them together is the bond of his fatherly love. Some of you have experienced this with, child, with children that aren't yours by birth. You don't have a birth certificate that says that they're yours. Um, they're not yours by natural descent. You've adopted them into your home. And I would be confident that you would unequivocally say that the thing that makes them your child is stronger than what natural descent could be. It's stronger than what a birth certificate would say because the thing that makes them your child is the bond of your love. And that's a picture of the gospel, the love that unites us with the Father that's stronger than anything, that takes people like you and me, people who are a mess, and he makes them his children. That's the love of God that John wants us to see here. And so it leaves us asking like it asks, like it's impressed on John. What kind of love is this? What kind of love is this that would take people like us and make them his child? This isn't just wishful thinking because he says later in the verse, this is what we are. This has happened. It wouldn't just be awesome if it happened. It did happen. He's made us his children. And so can I just ask you, brothers and sisters who are gathered here this morning, are you presently aware of the love of the Father for you? Because I would venture to say 
as Christians, we're often far more aware of reasons why we don't belong in the household of God than we are aware of his present love for you. Are you aware of his love for you, his love that surpasses knowledge, his love that leaves the apostles John's jaw on the floor, just asking what kind of love is it that it would take people like us and make them God's children? So he says, beloved, we are God's children now. Even though he'll say later in verse 1, the world has rejected us, we've been accepted into God's family. We are God's children now. And that's easy for us to hear, but that's not always so easy for us to feel. It's easy for us to read on the pages of our Bible that we've been adopted into God's family, but the truth of our lives can often tell us something quite different. So John says, Beloved, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And we're like, John, that may be true. I hear what you're saying, but I still struggle with sin in perverse ways. My experience doesn't quite match that, that declaration that you're made. I often look like the world that I'm supposed to be separated from. And beyond that, John, people who you're calling God's children still suffer in very perverse ways, very serious ways. I hear you calling me his child, but there can be days, there can be months, there can be uh, even years for some of us where his love seems like a very distant reality, and we question it. And so as we're presented with this conflict um, that we're God's children now, but our experience tells us something quite different, John wants us to see something else. He says, first I showed you the love of the Father, now I want you to see your future hope. He says, you are God's child now, and I know it doesn't always feel like it, but the Father isn't done working in your life yet. He says in verse 2, we can bank our hope in this, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So here's the hope that John wants to put before our eyes this morning. When Jesus comes back, the declaration that you've been adopted into the family of God will match the experience of being adopted into the family of God. What you now believe inwardly and what you read on the pages of your Bible will be clearer than ever, publicly displayed for all, that you are one with him and you've been adopted by him. What you now believe by word of promise, you'll be, you'll be able to see face to face. He says, you are God's children now. And I know it doesn't always seem that way, but when he returns, our experience will match this declaration. So have hope. Have hope. What he's describing here is what theologians often call the already and the not yet of the Christian life that we find ourselves in. We are at this moment God's children, redeemed, justified, and adopted, but what we ultimately will be hasn't arrived yet. All that's needed for us to be set free from sin and welcomed into God's family has been accomplished, but the finished work of what that will be isn't yet here. And so sometimes it's described as a picture of these overlapping kingdoms. So in the beginning, God creates everything. Sin sets in and disrupts and destroys everything. And you have this kingdom of darkness that just runs, right? For, for thousands of years, it runs. And, and it's just death and destruction that makes up this age. But when Jesus comes, what, he, what does he say? The kingdom of God is at hand. So he's now broken into this world that's filled with death and destruction but the world of death and destruction is still in existence, where we still sin, where we still mess up. That's still in existence. We're not fully what we will be yet. And so we find ourselves in this in-between period 
Already he has come and accomplished redemption, but not yet has it find its fulfillment. And so that's where we currently find ourselves in this realm of the already and not yet. And so the simple takeaway from that is that God is not done at, at work in our lives. He's not done working in our world. And so as you experience this tension of being declared God's child, but have a daily struggle with sin, still disappointing yourself and others, still experiencing suffering that exists in this fallen age, John says, have hope. Look at the future promised to you. He says there's a day coming when we, when at the return of Christ, where we'll be transformed to be like him. We'll be transformed to be like him. What does he mean? He means we'll have a legitimate, glorified body that resembles something of what Jesus' body was when he rose from the grave. That's what's promised to us. John, or, or Paul in, in Philippians put it like this, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So John means to say that we'll have a real physical body upon the return of Christ that matches the, the declaration that we've been made God's children. This will be full transformation into the person that you and I have always longed to be, but have never been able to accomplish it on our own. A new existence that's free from sin, free from disappointment, free from failure. The work that began in our regeneration will find its completion and will be fully consummated where we'll resemble him in purity. And I think as John sets our eyes on this coming transformation, on this future hope, he's, he's setting our eyes on something that we actually all long for, this type of transformation, regardless of our faith. Because we live in a society that makes a lot of money in the realm of personal transformation. Especially as we head into the new year. There's going to be all kinds of ads from gyms and uh, diet plans offering a quick fix to the pounds we put on since Thanksgiving. All kinds of transformation will be sold to us um, with all sorts of promise that will help us become the people that we've always wanted to be. And I think the area that we actually see this maybe more vividly than anywhere else is in the realm of cosmetic surgery. Because I can't think of a faster way to take something that you don't like about yourself Get that thing worked on, flexible payment plans, and, and it's fixed. You can fix it about yourself uh, through, through cosmetic surgery. But there's a sad phenomenon that occurs with many who undergo this type of surgery. Um, there's quite frequently in those who undergo cosmetic surgery a post-procedural depression that sets in, and it can often be really severe. Here's how one person in an article described it. She said, uh, when personal trainer and author Laura Pillarella had a chin implant and an eye procedure, when her bandages came off, there was disappointment. I wasn't beautiful, just different. It wasn't enough, she said. Fifteen procedures later, Pillarella had become so disheartened that she considered ending her life. Some women, like Pillarella, sink so far into the depths of despair after certain plastic surgeries that they even consider suicide. Some of those who undergo this type of procedure are three times at a higher risk of taking their own lives after uh, this type of surgery. And so what John is promising here, or um, because we live in a culture that, that, that recognizes that people aren't happy with who they are, 
They're, they're deeply insecure, and, and so we sell them transformation. We can make them the person that they've always wanted to be, but afterwards, there's still scores of patients who aren't satisfied, so they either get 15 more surgeries or slip into a deep depression. And the article said that researchers aren't sure why this is the case, but I, but I think I have a suggestion for them. The transformation that gyms and diets and plastic surgeon, surgeons offer don't go deep enough. The issue isn't that we need physical modification, but that we're a people fallen from our creator who long to be restored to the original purpose that we were designed for. That longing is deep within us, and we, we seek to fulfill it through all kinds of, of, of transformation on our own. But the real issue is sin. That's what we need to get set free from. And, and that spiritual brokenness um, always seems to let us down, and we're longing for this type of transformation that John is promising us here. The future hope is one where we will have an entirely new existence that's no longer prone to disobedience, that no longer resists the will of our Father. This means that our incessant struggle with sin will be finished. Our bouts with anger, our bouts with depression, our bouts with lust will be left behind and will be transformed into the person that you and I have always longed to be, that we try to fabricate on our own but can never do by ourselves. This is who we were made to be. This is who we long to be. And so right now, We've been adopted into God's family at this present moment. And even though our experience doesn't always match that, at the second advent, we'll be displayed as his children as well. And so John has taken us on this little tour. He said, I've shown you something of of God's love for you, and I've shown you a small glimpse of the future hope that awaits you. Now, in light of those things, I want to talk to you about how you live your life today. So let me ask you, how would you, in light of these truths, advise someone to go about conducting their life on this earth? You've been adopted into God's family apart from any works of your own. You're you're now his child. You have a future that is secure for you that's been purchased by Christ. In light of those things, what what might you say how we could go about living our lives in those things? Maybe don't overly burden yourself with trying to live a pure life today because there's coming a future where that'll be taken care of. Or let's not get bogged down with trying to be righteous on our own because Jesus is the one who accomplishes that for us. So just try to, let's not get stressed out with things like that. Here's how John responds to it. You've been graciously adopted into the family of God. You're his child apart from any of your own doing. There's coming a day when Jesus returns where you'll be transformed into a morally perfect being. Now, get to work purifying yourself, he says. He calls for an active pursuit on our part to pursue uh, this purification, to exert our life energies, to work exceedingly hard at living this kind of lifestyle. He says the one who hopes in him purifies themselves even as he is pure. In light of who you are, Even more, in light of who you're going to be, get to work living a pure life today. So we should ask, what do you mean, John, by by living a pure life? What What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, pure, another way of saying it might just simply to say 100%. Um, when we say we have pure gold, it's, it's gold that's uh, free from any other material. It's 100% gold. Or if food's 100% organic, it's free from uh, any man-made products that would, um, that would corrupt it. It, it. It's pure. It's 100%. And so what John is saying, that, that uh, this is a call to, to, to live our lives in such a way that, that we seek to remove anything from our conduct that would be displeasing to the Lord that would save us. 
It's a pursuit of 100%. We look to his word, we see the type of life that it calls us to, and we seek to live in accordance to it. But the most important thing, and where we always seem to get tripped up on this, is that this is not done to gain something. This is done out of what's already ours in Christ. The pursuit of a pure life isn't to gain access into God's family. It's not to secure a future hope because we already possess those things. So when we start talking about living according to a certain moral standard or trying to conduct ourselves uh, in, in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord, we often think of moral standards as a means to a greater end. If I live this certain way, I'll be accepted into this group or um, uh, there will, won't be a bad consequence if I live this certain way or, or we, we have some sort of uh, end, greater end that we're looking for by living a pure life. But what John is telling us is that whatever you could seek to try to acquire from, from living a pure life on your own has already freely been given to you in Christ. That end has been accomplished. Now start living in light of the reality of what's been accomplished for you. John is saying, look at who you are. You're a child of God. Look at where you're headed. You're headed towards an entirely pure existence. Now live like it. One author says that you can sum up the entire ethic of the New Testament in one small sentence. Be who you are. Be who you are. That that is the New Testament ethic that we're called to. And so he's saying, live in light of that identity. Can you imagine if you had a dude who was engaged to be married? He's in this kind of already not yet period. Like he's already committed himself to someone, but he's not yet arrived at the day where they've uh, consummated that. And so he's engaged, but he's still running around flirting with everybody. He's going on dates with whoever he feels like. What, What would we say to someone like that? Like, dude, your identity has changed. Why are you living like a single man? That you're, I know you haven't arrived yet at where you're headed, but your identity is totally different. You need to start living in light of the reality of who you are. That's, that's the essence of John's argument here. Your identity has changed, and even though it hasn't been fully realized yet, you've got to start living in light of that today. It's absolutely unthinkable for John that someone would call God their father and that they would await this hope that's ours while living in existence that, that's, that's a, a contradictory lifestyle today living a life that contradicts those identities that that have been given to us. John Stott, a commentator on this, put it like this, Since the Father is pure, and when we see him, we will be like him in his purity, we must ensure that the process of purification has begun now and purify ourselves. True, only the blood of Christ can cleanse us from the stain and guilt of sin, but we have a part to play in purifying ourselves from its power. So this is a a call to actively pursue a pure life for anyone who would call themselves a Christian. This is not passive. This doesn't just happen automatically. It involves exertion and work on our side. This is grace-motivated exertion into growing into the person that God already views us as. When you hear Paul say this in Philippians, when he says, work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you both to will and and to work to his good pleasure. The grace of God and the power of God works in us as we work as well, growing into the person that he already views us as. So in light of the Father's great love for us, in light of the hope that we await, John's calling us to be busy in growing into the pure, whole, righteous person that we're already viewed as. That's the call. That's the the word of God to us this morning. And 
as we, as we wrap it up, I want to give us just a couple practical steps for what this might look like in your life. Um, and to do this, I've totally geeked out. I've reverted back to a Christian teaching practice that was popular in the 90s. Um, I've got some alliteration for you. Um, so, so here's what I've got. Uh, here's four categories that I think might help us. Pause, pray, people, and plan. If we totally wanted to go wild, we could call it uh, the four Ps of pursuing purity. Um, I'm so, I know that's terrible. I apologize, but hopefully you'll at least remember it. Pause. What do I mean by that? I mean building time into your life where there's legitimate reflection on how you're living. As I think it was Aristotle that said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Worth living. So having, having moments of pause in your life where, where you evaluate how things are going. Um, you... Uh, um, when we, when we come to confession every morning and we pause during our time of worship, that's what we're trying to do, just having this reflective time to consider um, what, what areas we need to grow in. Sometimes before I come to communion, if it's just been a bad week, I just kind of pause and hang out there for a little bit and just do some inner reflection and allow the Lord to kind of bring things to light that, that I need to confess. Um, recently, it's been brought to my attention that an area that I need to grow in personally is into the category of patience, being a more patient person. Um, and so uh, it manifests itself in different ways. And so someone encouraged me that a way that I can grow on that is just to sit down with a journal or, or, or a computer and write out, hey, where, where are the areas that patience manifests, impatience manifests itself? At what moments does that come out of my life um, that, that, that brings that about? And so there's this reflection that's happening where, where I'm evaluating. Um, and, and then the next thing that, that I would call us to is, is to pray about those areas that we've been reflecting on. Because we often notice things that are uh, incongruous with the will of God in our life, but we think we can just handle it on our own, when in fact the first person that we should be talking to about it should be our Heavenly Father. That's why Jesus invites us to pray, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Like there's legitimate power in bringing the areas that we struggle in before the Lord. And so having prayer as a a part of this um, as well. And then the the next one is people. there's got to be people in our lives who are helping us to grow in these areas. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be, may be healed. So as I've discovered patience is an area that I need to grow in, what I did, I took that to my community group and just said, Hey guys, this is where I'm at. This is an area in my life that I need growth in. Can you, can you observe my life and see areas where it might be coming out? Um, can, can you call me out when you do see it there? Can you hold me accountable to this? I involved people in it. Um, I involved my wife in it. So the other day I was trying to rush Emily, my little two-year-old, out the door. I just said, there it is. There's the impatience. And, and at the moment, I didn't really want to hear that, but having people who can speak into that uh, can be helpful. Um, and this is why real membership to a church is, is critical because we can't do this alone. And, and then the last thing I would invite us to do is, is to plan, to put even on paper something, some, some ways, some, some verses maybe that would be helpful to memorize in this area that you want to grow in, um, or some steps that you're going to take uh, 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 to pursue this. Um, this might involve cutting things out of your life that are, that are triggers for you. Like, so we frequently hear in our church that, that people do battle with lust. That's just the era that we live in. That's, that's a big problem that people stress out on. And so um, for you, like cutting out like Game of Thrones from your regular TV watching might actually be something that's a part of the plan that would be helpful for you to grow in that. Um, so th- those are a few things. Pause, pray, uh, plan, or people, and plan. Um, because at the end of the day, we won't just wake up one day uh, having grown in godliness on our own. We won't just stumble into this. And so um, out of what's already ours in the gospel, um, in light of the Father's extraordinary love to us, 
in light of our future hope, the call on us is to actively pursue living a pure life. And as we wrap it up, I've got to uh, just, just talk to a couple other people who might be here this morning. Um, because there, there may be some here this morning, and if someone were to ask you, hey, hey what religion do you affiliate yourself with? Or, um, you know, what do you believe about God? You'd say, oh, I, I'm a Christian. I, I, I'm a Christian. Um, but if that would be the only evidence of your life, that, you're an actu- that Jesus is, is actually your Lord, that, that, that you've actually submitted yourself to him, um, then John's warnings for us this morning are actually pretty scary. Because he says that we can actually deceive ourselves into thinking that we are, are, are a Christian when in fact we don't know God at all. Um, but, but this isn't to beat you down. This is to invite you this morning, if there is no evidence in your life that Jesus is Lord of, of your life, to, to take that to him this morning because his mercy and his love is available for you. And so if that's the spot that you're in, if you're Christian only by name, that's a really scary place to be. And I would just invite you to evaluate that this morning. Um, and there may be others in this, in, in this room this morning where you know you're not a Christian. You wouldn't, wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus. And I just want to say to you that if you tried to implement a couple of these things in your life to maybe grow in an area that, that you're disappointed about yourself, um, I just want you to know that God would not be any more pleased with you if you started pursuing this on your own than he is with you right now. Because he says to us that, that we're utterly helpless on our own and that our only hope before him is to throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus and to trust in what he did on the cross in his body, bearing the punishment for our sin so that we could be acceptable to God. So trying to do these things on your own so that maybe you'll be a little more uh, uh, acceptable in God's eyes could never be done. Our only hope is throwing ourselves on his mercy, and I want to invite you to do that this morning. If you know you're not a Christian, I want to ask you, what are you waiting for? You have a father that loves you dearly, that promises to you a future hope, and his, his invitation to you this morning is to trust in what he's done on your behalf. And that, if it, that is you. In just a moment, we're going to take communion, and I want to invite you just to stay in your seat. And if something that I've said has stood out with you, I want to invite you to just pray about that and take that to the Lord yourself during this time. But, but if you're not a Christian, all this would be would be a hollow meal for you. So just hang in your seat when we come forward. That's not an embarrassing thing. Um, just, just hang out there and, and pray. And for the rest of us, we're going to come to the table this morning, and we're going to do it in, in, in a recognition that, yes, indeed, God has called us to a certain standard of living. He's called us to a pure life. But that's nothing we can ever do on our own. And so as we come to the table, we're acknowledging that we are still at this moment in need of his mercy, in need of his grace, um, and, and that we celebrate in the reality that he died to make us pure. And so I'm going to pray. You guys can come forward. There's two tables in the front. There's two in the back. You guys can come forward when you're ready, and uh, we'll celebrate this meal together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning um, that demonstrates for us the extraordinary love that you've given to us. And I just pray that you would impress that reality on our lives. Um, I pray for those who feel distant from your love, and it's been a, a really hard year for them, and they're wondering um, not only about your love, but if you even notice them, if, you, if you're even uh, cognizant of them, that you would just encourage them this morning that you are a good father who loves his people. And I pray for all of us as a, as a community that we would uh, corporately pursue growing in holiness, growing in, pursu- in, in purity on our own, um, by your grace that we would seek to, to put off the old life and to take on the new. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've died to make us pure, that you've died to make us acceptable to you. And now out of that, 
Would you help us to live a life that's worthy of the calling that we've received? So we thank you for these things and we celebrate them as we come to the table now. In Jesus' name, amen.